Well, as we come into Romans 9, we're coming into one of these doctrines that seem to shake a lot of foundations today in the Christian world. And I want us to be very careful as we go through this, because we want to see it for what it says according to the purpose of God. And as we look through here, we realize this is one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament, for sure. Definitely one that's been debated down through the centuries. And I want us to see exactly what the Word of God says. Because when we go through the Scripture, I don't think we have to be afraid of it. We don't need to fear this doctrine of election. We know the Bible speaks very clearly with it. And we're not afraid to proclaim it. For this is the Word of God here ye him. And so when we come in here, we're going to open up again in Romans chapter 9, starting verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I open up the word of God, I realize that every word in here has been written for me to read. This is the voice of God. This is the communication that God has chosen to relate to us. These are great, heavy doctrines in the word of God but they are very precious to us that are saved, to us that have truly repented of our sins, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and wholly embrace him as the Lord of my life. But as we wonder, is there unrighteousness with God? Well, God forbid. We know that God is very righteous in everything he does. We know God has a purpose for everything that comes to be. We know that we can read the word of God and find great security in God's word because it's God's word that's been given to us. We have been told to meditate upon the Word of God day and night. How important is it to read the Word of God? Well, according to the Scripture, we are to meditate on it day and night. We are to write it on the tables of our heart. We are to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And we don't want to fall into that category where it says, Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I've told you to do? And so the Bible makes it very clear that we are to be a doer of the Word. And so when we move in here to verse 15, I want you to see what the Bible says, how it says it, the purpose behind it, the power of the gospel, and how you and I know that God's word is spoken to us, how we know it's absolute truth. We're not afraid of it. We don't skip over it. We don't jump over certain issues. We deal with them. We go through it verse by verse, line upon line. And so when you come into verse 15, the Bible says, For he saith, he is God, he saith to Moses, Back in the Old Testament, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And in response to the accusation, such a teaching about God's sovereign election, some people would say is inconsistent with his fairness. But when we look at the Old Testament, we realize that he's citing right from the Old Testament, and we're talking about Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. This is what God said to Moses. He said, and he said, I will make my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now that is God speaking. Paul is quoting exactly from Exodus as we see it here. And we know that God is absolutely sovereign and does elect who will be saved. Now I know when we deal with that doctrine, there's a lot of people that have a lot of issues here. I do not. I believe this is totally, completely God in every aspect of our life. He does not violate his other attributes at all. He determines who 
will receive mercy. So when we look at the word of God here in Romans 9.15, again, we're quoting from Exodus 33.19, for he saith to Moses, that's God, he, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God has spoken very clearly. And so Paul, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to identify this very clearly in verse 16, because the Bible says, so then it is not of him talking about people, it is not of him that willeth. Now when we think about that word willeth, salvation is not initiated by human choice. Absolutely not. We call that semi-Pelagianism, where man has to cooperate with God in order to be saved. That is not in the Bible. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Even faith is a gift of God. When you look at a verse like John, Chapter 6, verse 37, he makes it very clear. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. We're talking about those believing ones. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. In him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Because they have been given to him from the Father. So if you're born again here today, you can rest assured that the Father hath given you to the Son. And we've already established the aspect that it was before the foundation of the world. And so when we look at a very common verse here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that faith, as you look here, and that not of yourselves, that faith to believe, not of yourselves, but what does he say? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so when we look here initially, so it's not of him that willeth. We have to understand that God is the one that has done this saving work. God is the one that has revealed Christ to you. God is the one that has done that work of regeneration in your heart where you know completely 100% that you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, not in your works, not in your identity, not who you were, not because you made a choice, but God stepped into your life, brought you into the story of salvation, redeemed your soul, revealed Christ to you, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ died for you and rose from the dead the third day. That is the gospel. That is the word of God. And the Holy Spirit confirms that in our heart. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the one that has sealed us until the day of redemption. The Bible says that God is the one that began the good work who will also finish it or perform it as the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And so when we look here, he makes it very clear where he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth. That is what Paul says very clearly. And he says, nor of him that runneth. Salvation is not merited by some kind of human effort, human works. You got people all around us today that are teaching salvation that once you're saved, you have to maintain it. You have to do this and you have to do that. And you have to do all these works to make sure you're going to maintain it. If God began the good work, God finishes the good work in your life. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. So nor of him that runneth. It isn't the idea where I've done all these good things and surely God will accept me into his kingdom because I've done all these things for him. Listen to me, the Bible makes it very clear that all our righteous acts are filthy rags. 
How do we know that? Because that's what the Word of God says. And so when you look at our verse here that we're speaking of today, it's very important to see that. He says, nor of him that runneth, but of God. And what does he say? That sheweth mercy. Remember our verse back in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither have done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him, that's God, that calleth, the effectual calling. Remember, whenever we look at our word called in the epistles, it always deals with a believer. Only a believer has an effectual calling by God because God claims him for his own. And so when you look here, he says, into our verse 16, he says very clearly, so it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So if you are born again here today, God has shown mercy to your soul. That is what the word of God says. We're not afraid to say it. I don't know about you, but I don't want my salvation to have any merit upon anything that I have done. I want my salvation to be wholly based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to know what the Bible says when he says salvation is of the Lord. I want to know that when God stepped into my life that he has forgiven me all my sins and trespasses. He has washed me clean through the blood of Christ and he has given me the Holy Spirit, which is the eternal spirit that has sealed me until the day of redemption and has given me that faith, the holy rest in Christ and Christ alone, that no matter what may come, I can trust him with my life. I can trust in the Lord with all my heart. And not based upon something that I did. Not a semi-Pelagianism where man cooperates with God to get saved. That don't exist. It's not in the Bible. Regardless of what people want to say. So I believe that if it's not in Scripture, I want nothing to do with that. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I want to know what does God say? How does he say it? I want to know with an absolute certainty that these things I've been written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible makes it very clear that that confidence that we have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a work of grace, that is regeneration, that is what it means to be born again or be born from above. Because the Bible says in John three twenty seven that a man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven, but from God. Okay? So when you look here, he comes back into that verse 17. Paul's going to make it more clear than what he has made it. I mean, to me, he has made it very clear, absolutely black and white. I don't see any gray area here, no variables, not at all. This is God, and when God does a work, he does a holy and a just work, and everything he does is according to purpose. So he saved your soul according to God's purpose, if you are redeemed here today. So what does the Bible say? Verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Now look at the word here. For the scripture saith, I mean, I don't know about you, but we believe in the infallibility of scripture. We believe it is inerrant. We believe it is God-breathed. We believe that every word in this book has been written from God to us for us to read what God has said. And since God never lies, we can trust it. And so Paul, he's always going back to the Old Testament in these doctrines. He's always speaking what has already been spoken. He is not making up a presupposition. He is not making up his opinion. He is speaking what the Holy Spirit has given him to write on the pages of our book that we call the Bible. And so the Bible says, 
For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, I want you to notice this. The scripture, look what it says. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Paul, what did the scripture say unto Pharaoh? Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. And in the very deed for this cause have I, that's God, raised thee up, that's Israel, for to show in thee my power. I did it. All of it. That my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Okay? I want you to understand that. So when you look here, for the scripture saith, God saith, you see the comparison there between the book here in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, for even for the same purpose have I, God, raised thee up. Who did that? God did it. I mean, it refers to the bringing forward or the lifting up. It is often used to describe one that a person rises to a leadership or to a dictatorship or to a president. And that all these titles, God has placed them there. We would say amen to that. Amen. So when we look here, he says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, For even for the same, the same purpose have I raised thee up. Well, let's look at a couple minor prophets in regard to this aspect of being rose up. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6, For lo, I raise up, now I is God again, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land and to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Who did this? God did it. I did it. I raised them up. I have a purpose for this wicked people. That's God speaking. Another one, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 16. God says, For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that is broken, nor feed that will stand still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Who did that? God did it. He raised them up for a purpose. That's important. So when you look at the word of God here back into our text, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I, God, raised thee up. Pharaoh thought his position, his actions, were of his own free choice. What a foolish thing to think. To accomplish his own purposes, as if Pharaoh did it, and not God. In reality, they were what? They were going to serve God's purpose. God raised Pharaoh up for this time. And we know the rest of the story. So God could crush Pharaoh. The very Pharaoh, the most powerful nation in the world, at his will. Let's look at it. What does he say? It says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, For even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Why did God raise Pharaoh up? To show my name, that they will know my name. I raised him up. I take him down. Does God have a right to do such a thing with his creatures? Yes. Why? He is creator God. He can do whatsoever he pleases. 
Psalm 115, verse 3. That's what your Bible says. So when we look here where he says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. How important is God's name? Very important to God. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, upon the third and fourth generation. So when we look here, the Bible says, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Who did that? God did it. So what does the Bible say? Verse 18, back into our text. Therefore, therefore, what is what previous? Hath he, he is God, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Who does that? God. God does that. That Greek word literally means to make something hard. That's what we see. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. It's often used figuratively in the Bible, our same Greek word, to make one stubborn or obstinate. Ten times in Exodus, to you that have read it, refers to God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Who did it? God did it. Other times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh did it. But when we look at the word of God, ten times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God did it. He said, I did it. This does not mean that God actively created unbelief, as some would say, or some other evil in Pharaoh's heart. What does the Bible say? James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no man say that when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. That's what God says. But when we look here, rather that God withdrew the divine influences that ordinarily acted as a restraint to sin. I mean, we talked about that, the Holy Spirit today, pulling back away without the restraint of evil and letting men do what men do today in wicked abominations, massive murder, and every other kind of crime today. But he allowed Pharaoh's wicked heart to pursue its, his sin unabated. 
I want you to see that. If God doesn't restrain us, the heart of man is desperately wicked and it's capable of anything. But by the restraining work of the Holy Spirit, he keeps us many times from sin. Now look what I want you to see here. Some verses. I want to come back into verse 18. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he, God, hardeneth. You say, I just can't believe God would do such a thing. God can. God does it. Man, I can go through the Old Testament and read it over and over and over again, and I can see where God, God put a lying spirit in that person. God blinded their heart. God blinded their eyes. God made them deaf. God made them die. God did it with a purpose, and everything God does is righteous. That's God. And when we say that we are saved by grace, to us that are truly born again, we know it is completely by grace are we saved. So when we look at the word of God, I want you to see that again. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who did that? God did it. Can't get God off the hook. He doesn't want to be off the hook. He wants you to know, I can do this because I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm pure, I'm God. I'm creator, God, okay? Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. Who did that? God gave them up. Look at the scripture. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Who did that? God did it. God did it. That's what the scripture says. God doesn't lie. Now look what he says. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. Verse 19, that wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? I mean, the objection is how God, how God would blame anyone for their sin and unbelief. You have people say that all the time. If God doesn't give everybody a free will to do what they will, then God just lets them do these things. Listen to me. You're talking about holy God. No one, no one, no one deserves to be saved. We all deserve to be damned. You want fair? Then we're all damned. That's fair. Holy fair and righteous. But God. Okay? But God. We love that. Because then people say, and Juan, when he was when he has sovereignly determined the person's destiny, that's wrong. No, it's not. Have you met God? I mean, that's one of the purposes of going through Behold Your God on Thursday night. 
I want you to know, I want you to know who God is. Not the God that people make up in their brains. Not the God that doesn't exist. I'm telling you, there is a different gods that are being preached out of different pulpits all over the place, but it's not the God of Scripture. It's not God. It's a lie. That's why you have many unconverted people sitting in quote-unquote Christian churches that are dead in their sins because they have been told a lie. And that's the truth. Dead in their sins, sitting in church Sunday after Sunday, but dead in their sin because they have never been resurrected by God. There was a man in Spurgeon's town. And he looked at Charles Spurgeon one day when he was walking by as he was a drunk. And the man looked at him and says, Mr. Spurgeon. And he said, yes, sir. I'm one of your converts. And he looked at him. And he said, I can tell. And the man looked rather puzzled. And what Spurgeon said was, you probably are one of my converts, but obviously you're not God's convert. That's powerful. That's exactly where the church is today. You're man's convert, but you're not God's. That's a big deal, isn't it? But look what he says here, back into our text. That will say then unto me, Paul speaking, why doth he yet find fault? Look at the objections. For who hath resisted his will? What does Paul say to these questions? Paul says, well, I better leave this alone. I don't want to upset him. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. I don't understand why God does what he does. I'll tell you what, if you ever understand why God does everything he does, I'm telling you, he's not God. Because the reality of, he never expected us to understand everything he does. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust me. Don't try to figure me out. You are not God. And so God says, I'm going to give you a book to read. Read the word of God and trust it. That is me, God, speaking to you, the scripture. The scripture said unto Pharaoh, remember our earlier voice? The Bible said unto Pharaoh, as we would say in a more contemporary term. But when we look here, what does he say? That will say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? But Paul says in verse 20, but not, what's he say? Nay, but O oh man, nay. Don't come with me with those questions. Paul says, nay, but O oh man, who art thou? that reply us against God. You know how many men hate that doctrine of election? You know how many people hate that doctrine when the Bible is very dogmatic with it? We don't hate it, we embrace it, and we tell everybody to repent and believe and leave the results with God. So the Bible says, as Paul says here, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God. I mean, the nature of Paul's reply makes it clear. He's not addressing those with honest questions about this difficult doctrine. 
This is a hard saying of Paul. Remember Peter said Paul wrote many things with hard things. Paul did. But those who seek to use it, this doctrine of election, to excuse their own sin and unbelief. That's important. Look what it says here. Come back into our text. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him, God that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? Why hast thou made me thus? Would you want to tell your creator why he made you the way you are made? Could we control who our parents were? Who our family is? Guess who did that? God did it with a purpose. Why hast thou made me thus? You have people that hate that so bad that they say, fine, then I guess I'm just going to go to hell. When they say something like that, there's not a doubt in my mind that they are unconverted and dead in their sin. No born-again, spirit-filled Christian would ever say a thing like that against God. And I have heard people that have said that very thing. They're not Christians. I'll guarantee it. What does the Bible say? What's Paul going to say? Romans 9, 21. Next verse. Have not the potter power over the clay? I mean, could not have God made us different? Couldn't he have made our nose smaller, our ears bigger, our hair a different color, or my eyes instead of brown, it should have been blue? Couldn't God do that if he wanted to do that? Make one short, one small, one big. Did not God do these things? It's the way he created us. Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel, one person, unto honor, and another unto dishonor? Couldn't God do such a thing? Yes. Yes, he could. These verses with me in Isaiah 64, verse 6. The Bible says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are filthy rags, and we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. <coughs> Look at what it said there. Isaiah 64, 7. There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. I found something inside me one day and I just knew that I was going to trust Jesus. And so I made my decision to trust Christ. I did what they told me to do. And because of that decision I made, I know that I am in Christ. That is such folly foolishness. That is an unstudied person 
that does not know what the Word of God says. What does the Word of God say? And there is none that call upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy faith from thy face from us and hath consumed us because of our iniquities. When a person is dead in their sin, God has hid his son from them. They cannot see. They cannot see. At that time in their life, they cannot see. But now, verse 8 of Isaiah 64, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art the potter, and we all, look what he says, and we all are the work of thy hand. I mean, I don't know about you, but praise God. I mean, Paul argues from a, a very irrational or a far from an arrogant thought here, as some do. Now, there are people that believe in the doctrine of election, quote-unquote, that are very arrogant and very egotistical, and they're probably just as unconverted believing in this doctrine as those that do not believe in this doctrine. So don't think for a minute because one would believe in this doctrine of election that somehow that they're good, they're in, because there are many that believe, quote-unquote, in this that have never truly repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I have met them. Look what he says. I mean, for men to question God's choice of one unto salvation and not another, who are we to say yea or nay? I mean, as for a piece of pottery to question what? The purposes of the potter? No, I don't like the way you made this pottery. But you're not the creator of it. God is. And so when we look here, what do we see? What is Paul going to say? Again, we're going to... This, these are not easy doctrines. But this is, this is God. This is the word of God. This is Christ, the word. Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? Here's the question of the day. If God wanted to save someone, God can save anyone. Anyone at any time. Can you imagine if your salvation was based wholly upon your choice because you figured it out all by yourself? What good is in us to make such a choice? We're dead in our sins. We have no capacity to make such a choice. But God, who is rich in mercy, for with his great love wherein he loved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Look what he says. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? And verse 22, and what if God... Look what Paul says here. What if God? I mean, this introduces a statement of fact in the form of a rhetorical question. Paul knows the answer. When you ask a rhetorical question, you already know the answer. Paul says, what if God, willing to shew his wrath? I mean, the Greek word here speaks of a, a divine intention, not a passive resignation, a divine intention. What if God, willing to shew his wrath and to make his power known, 
endured with much long suffering. I mean, God could justly destroy sinners the first time they're sinned, and he would be righteous in doing so, but he patiently endures their rebellion. Do you wonder why we have all these abominations that have raised up and God hasn't just killed them all? He endures. I mean, rather than giving them what every sin deserves, which is eternal punishment. You sin once in your whole life, the wrath of God would fall on you one time. Now look what he says. What if God, willing to shew his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted, fixed state to destruction? I mean, he's continuing that analogy of the potter. So what if God, willing to shew his wrath, rhetorical questions, we've already talked about that. What if God, willing to shew his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Paul refers to those whom God has not chosen for salvation. That's what he's talking about but rather allowed to incur the just penalty for sin, which is God's wrath. Okay. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory. I want you to notice that word, make known. And that he might, he, God, might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. If you're born again here today, you are a vessel of mercy. That's what you are, you know. I mean, this refers to the greatness of God's character. Seen especially, if you think about it, with grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness that he, God, grants sinners in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he... That's God. Had afore prepared unto glory. <coughs> now that's a very powerful set of verses. The child of God should never be scared by these verses. And if one says, I must not be one of the chosen, my question to him or her, do you feel in your heart that you have sinned against God? Do you feel that your sin has separated you from your creator? Do you feel that God could not forgive you 
for your sin and it brings great dread and fear into your heart and it makes you very fearful and you want God to save you and you feel that you know for a fact that Christ died for you. You know that he died for you and you know that he did it for you and it really bothers you thinking maybe I'm just not one of the chosen and that's why I'm going to be one of the damned and you wonder to yourself, but I know that I'm a sinner and what do I do? You go on your face before God and ask him to save your soul. And he will. He will save your soul. Because the only way you come to that kind of an understanding of the gospel is the working and power of the Holy Spirit. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, a man will never feel a need to be saved. He will never feel a need to be forgiven. He will feel that he is okay and everything is well with his soul. He has no need. Or he might say, I did that. I'm okay. I'm a Christian. I'm all right. But as I said before, many who call themselves Christians are not all right. They're in serious trouble. They have never truly repented and thrown themselves on the mercy of God. Be merciful unto me, O Lord. I'm a sinner. It's in the Bible. And if that stirs in your heart in such a way, you can rest assured it's not all about you. It is about Christ. It is about the Holy Spirit pressuring you and moving upon your heart to show you that Christ is the way. There is no other name. There is no other way. And you cry out to Jesus Christ and tell him to save your soul. And according to the word of God, he will save you because that is the initiating and working of the Holy Spirit in your heart to reveal Christ to you. That is the only way you will ever be saved. Now some would say in these verses, as I have read through these few verses, that we're only talking about Israel. Some of the people that have some different understandings and doctrine and theology believe this is only talking about Israel. This is talking about us. How do I know? Our next verse, 24. Even us, whom he hath called, that's the effectual calling of God. Look what he says. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of puts out that understanding that people like to use for these verses. If you see yourself in a situation where you feel as if you are not in Christ and it really bothers your soul and it really makes you very fearful, I am thankful that you are fearful. I am thankful that your heart really moves within you. I am thankful that you know that you are lost. Because I want you to know, before one can be saved, they have to understand that they are lost, that they are dead in their sins. But when the Holy Spirit does that work of regeneration, to be born again, to be born again from above, as John 3 does seriously tell us, and Christ is your life, and Christ is, your, is everything to you, and you love Jesus, and you just want to serve him, you just want to be obedient to him, that is grace, that is the Holy Spirit, that is the work of a mighty God in a wicked sinner such as us. That's God. 
That's what separates a real Christian from a false professing Christian. What is important to God is important to them. They love what God loves and they hate what God hates. That's how you know if you're real and authentic in your beliefs upon Christ. You say, Lord, I want to give you my life, my whole life, and I just want to be used of you. I want to see my family come to Christ. I want to see my friends come to Christ, my co-workers, whatever it may be. I want to see them come to Christ. I want you to open the eyes of their dead souls to see the risen Christ. That should be the heart of every Christian. Because when God steps into a person's life, everything changes. <laughs> I mean, you talk about a new heart, talk about a new creation, a new creature. When one is born again, they just say, I can't believe I was so blind for so long. But now I see. I see. And what do we do? We give glory to God. You know, if I went back 30 years ago and uh, the preaching I did then, I thought that every soul depended on how good of a presentation that I could give them. I thought I had to preach harder. I had to memorize more scripture. I had to do more to convince them and, and beg them to get saved and say the prayer. I did that stuff. I'd been there, played that game. I did it. Probably got a thousand names that I'll have to give an account for with that foolishness. But it was what I knew to do. That's what I thought was what I was supposed to do. That's what I was, I was told I was supposed to do. That was not it. Now, I do believe some of them really did get saved, in spite of me, for sure. But when I came to the understanding that I needed to teach and to preach and to write the Word of God and go to bed, then I knew that it had nothing to do with me. Either God saves or they die in their sin. But to be faithful with God's word and God's truth, to honor Christ, to honor Christ, and to see him high and lifted up. So I tell you, if you're somebody sitting here today and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, what if I'm not one of those that God has elected or chosen? What if I'm not one of them? Does it bother you? Is it really eating at your heart? And cry out to Christ with everything you got. Because if you do, it wasn't you. It was the Holy Spirit. Because the first thing before one can be saved is he has to see himself lost, dead in his sins, dead in his trespasses.